Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Everyday Mulemanship Podcast. It's uh, been a little while since I've done a question and answer uh, segment on here, so we're going to jump into some of that today. I got a lot of good questions. And uh, just got back from Florida. Our first clinic of the year went amazing. It was, uh, tell you what, it was sure nice to get down there, get out of the snow, and uh, good to see some friends and and make some new friends down there. So that was a good time. So I'm going to talk about our, our clinic in Florida a little bit. And also, last night, we just completed our very first ever virtual clinic. And it was uh, it was really good. Um, and definitely a little stressful <laughs> with the technology and, and things. And then, uh, you know... A lot of people I've, I've realized that are in in this industry, you know, in into the mules and the horses and stuff. Uh, you know, a lot of us just aren't too tech savvy, so it was it was definitely challenging. But we're going to talk about the the virtual clinic. That was a good time, and we got a lot of great stuff. So before we jump in, though, I want to thank our sponsors. We got some great sponsors. Uh, we got Roman Home. Uh, ben Lewis over there does a great job building these wall tents. If you're listening, you're a hunter, you're into packing, you like to get out there in that uh, back country away from everybody, you got to look up Roman Home. They do a great they do a great job building these wall tents. Um, also, big thanks to Colt Saddlery. My buddy Colt Nairing builds some really good gear. Find them on Facebook, Colt Saddlery. You won't regret getting a saddle from Colt. Also, Western Mule Magazine. And Mules and More magazine, these two magazines, they have supported us for a long time. And I've been reading their magazines, both of them, for a long time. They are incredible. I highly recommend subscribing to both magazines. Go to westernmulemagazine.com or mulesandmore.com. And last but not least, we are very grateful for the Boyd Ranch Mule Days. Uh they put on one heck of an event down there just outside of Wickenburg, Arizona. And you, you don't want to miss it. We're going to do a clinic there for three days. They got mule rides, uh, good food, and most importantly, great people and great friends. So you can find Boyd Ranch uh, Mule Days on Facebook and check them out. They are amazing and we appreciate their support. So with that being said... First thing I want to talk about is our clinic in Florida. Um, you know, 2021, we did clinic debriefs on every clinic, and I enjoyed it. Um, and I got the most feedback from our clinic debriefs. So this episode, we're going to kind of combine the Florida clinic and our virtual clinic since they're kind of back-to-back. And then uh, I got a bunch of good questions for for you guys, too. So Florida. I flew down there beautiful weather it felt so good to get down there in the sun and it's just such a sensory overload shock going from here you know here in utah where it's just white everywhere and uh you know white and bright you get down there and it is beautiful green leaves on the trees green grass and um it felt so good and you know, uh, Florida is, is one of them, you know, one of those clinics where I've had a really hard time getting people to, to repeat and come back there. It seems to often be new people in the clinics and, and there's a, a few, uh, 
just a couple of new folks this time. Um, everybody else was repeats, not necessarily from Florida. Uh, we had friends drive clear down from Pennsylvania and West Virginia to come to the clinic. And that was pretty neat having them drive down. And I know they didn't regret it. They went out and rode on the beach and, and found a place to trail ride pretty much every day, which was amazing. And, you know, Florida has so much to offer. It's a good state. Um, you know, we did our foundation class and our mulemanship one class. And you guys, if you've listened to the debriefs very often, you've heard me often talk about the foundation class, you know, as being the place where these bolting mules gather. Um, <laughs> and I was, I'm so happy to report that we didn't have any bolting mules in Florida. Uh, there was one little episode where one of the participants, um, his name is Brooks. His mule kind of got a little scared and, and kind of drug him down the arena for a few strides, but he got it quickly handled and taken care of. And it, for me, it was just really nice not to get drug around at a clinic for once. Um, you know, and, and this clinic, I since I flew down, I would just demonstrate on, you know, I just demonstrate on whatever horses or mules were there. And so that was kind of fun, just rotating around the, the group getting to work with these mules and, and, uh, it's kind of fun because, you know, the last few years I've tried really hard to wean myself off of working with everybody's mules at the clinics. Um, you know, a while ago I finally realized that, you know, these people are coming to get help so that they can go home and that they can be better. And me working with their mules, that's not going to do much for them. Now they might appreciate maybe me, me schooling their mule for a moment or two, but that's, that's really not why they, why most people that come to my clinics are there, you know, and if you're coming to the clinic, hoping to get your mule worked on, uh, I'm just going to tell you it, it's the, it's the wrong place. That's not, that's not our purpose. That's not our, what we're trying to do. I'm trying to get out there and help you, um, help you so you can help your mule. Me working on your mule doesn't do much. Now with, with that being said though, um, since I, you know, since I went down there I, on a plane, I didn't bring my own mules this time. And so I kind of had to work with other people's. And so I tried to just pick a, a handful, um, you know, that I could just demonstrate on and not interfere too much with what each participant kind of had going. You know, one thing that gets missed most often, I think, with working with equine is that relationship that gets built between you and your mule. That is so important. And, you know, you can come to the clinic and, and you can learn, you know, all these skills and, and these maneuvers and these moves and, and how to do this, how to move that. Um, you know, but, but really the piece that you're going to get that I can't teach you and I can't give to you is that relationship that you're going to build on account of you doing all those things. The more you practice, the more you work at these things, the more you're going to build that relationship. And I try to tell those folks down there in Florida this, how, you know, that is probably the best side effect that will come from your, your groundwork um, and the writing work too. But there's something a little different on the ground that is kind of hard to explain. I don't really know how to say it here. Um, but, but, but that connection, uh, you know, being able to move them and, and 
being able to get them to operate on a loose rein and not have to drag them anywhere, not have to drive them with your lead rope, uh, you know, building that slack and that rein and that feel, um, you know, again, that word feel, it's kind of a mysterious mythical word out there in the horsemanship world for some reason. And, but you know, it's just, to me, that feel is, is helping the mule to understand what you're thinking and be able to operate kind of on that thought wave rather than the physical stuff so much. Yeah, there's a lot of physical stuff involved, but, you know, building that feel, building that relationship, that's that's the best thing. And so one question that I get often is, you know, sh- should I send my mule to a trainer? Uh, should I, you know, should I have somebody else work it? Or, you know, should, should I be the only one that works this mule? You know, there's two sides to this. One side says... Let that mule be handled and, and you know, let that mule have as many interactions with as many people as possible. I think that's really good for an animal to be around a lot of people. On the other hand, I think that the quality that you're going to build, and I'm mostly talking about the, the beginning stages. Now, later on, you know, you, if you do a good job on that foundation, Later on, anybody and everybody should be able to handle your mule or your horse. But in the beginning, those beginning stages, those, those fragile parts of life, I think that it is best to have that relationship built with that animal, you know, one, one human, and, and that focus be there. Um, the consistency is super important during those foundation times. I was trying to share, share this with the people down there in Florida. That that consistency is important. You know, you know how you do it time after time. You want to be able to pick up on that rain, and and be consistent. Do the same thing. So when you do that with your rain, you pick up your rain and you put it in that position. It means the same thing every time. A always means A. B always means B. Um, and and this is important. That consistency is really important. And then repeating yourself, you you, you know you got to be willing to repeat yourself. Um, that's one of the funny myths in the meal world is oh you can't do the same thing too often, and uh, you know that's just kind of funny to me because I'm like you know you you got to repeat yourself. You got to be consistent. You gotta you gotta stick with that. You you can't just do something a couple times and then never check on it again. You know I can't tell you how many thousands of turns it takes for me to build a neck rein, a good neck rein on a mule or get my mule moving off my leg and my seat. Uh, you know, how many, how many repetitions of turning and stopping, how many times you pick up a soft feel, um, and how many times you, you, you move a hip, move a shoulder, uh, you know, how many times you work on changing leads, um, how many times you, you rope something, you know, I mean, all, all these things, uh, you know, the repetition is your friend. And it's no different than we we are. You know, you, you got to work at this stuff. So you got to be willing to repeat yourself. I think that's pretty important. Um, you know, one thing that, that comes up pretty often in these clinics, and, you know, I've talked about it often be, before, um, but being intentional. Uh, that's probably, that was probably one of the biggest highlights again 
for this foundation clinic, and I'm sure it won't be the last time it's a highlight, but, you know, being intentional about what you want that animal to do. If you can get one thing out of today's podcast, I hope it would be intention. Let me share with you the most common mistake I see in the groundwork. It's when folks will get out there, maybe they're in the arena, maybe they're in, their, in a round pen, or maybe they're in their pasture, whatever. But what I see is, is they'll start their groundwork, say, in that spot right there, in that corner. They're over there doing the groundwork. And before you know it, they have migrated from that corner over to the middle of the arena. And then next thing you know, they're back in a different corner. Next thing you know, they're over on that side of the arena. What happens so often in the groundwork is, is we get to, we get to kind of watching the animal so much, we forget to send them somewhere specific. So as you're doing your groundwork, try your, your ultimate best to really focus on where you want that mule to go. This is a huge help to the animal. I can't tell you how detrimental it is when you don't have intention. When you, If your mule figures out that you are just following them around out there in the arena, it, it, it's a huge relationship, I don't know, back you know, back step. You're really stepping back when this happens. And the mule's like, all right, well, apparently we'll just, you know, wander around out here and float around here and whatever. But what happens is, is little by little, your your mule will realize that you, you're not really taking care of things. And, and, you know, we talk about leadership and things. And I, and I think their views on leadership is different from our cultural norms of leadership. They, they want to be comforted. They want to be taken care of, that type of thing. It's, they don't want to be told what to do necessarily. But w when they figure out that you're kind of gliding out there and there's not really an intention, not really a plan, um, probably the biggest side effect of that is they start relating comfort to physical a physical spot in the arena. Um maybe it's the gate, maybe it's that corner or this corner, but they'll float around out there. And since they're not getting much of a, you know, a release um, of pressure, you know, through the moves, they'll, they'll relate it to a single spot. And the problem with that is, is inadvertently we start to create these, these mules that consequently will become a little herd bound maybe a little barn sour, but I, I don't, I don't want to build, I don't want to so much build that comfort in physical locations as much as I want to help them find that comfort within me. So if I'm being intentional and I'm picking where I want to send that animal specifically, and I stop that animal on a move, um, you know, being particular, they find, they, they find a little comfort there with me wherever we're at wherever we're at, but when you're not being intentional and they just kind of wander around and they're not really, you know, any direction there, it's a different, it's a different result that you get. So anyways, that was again, probably the main topic there in the foundation class. And the mulemanship class is a little, you know, we, we had a lot of the same participants do both classes and, and a lot of people do that and, and they're welcome to. 
you know, do the foundation and the mulemanship one. Those two classes go good together. The classes that don't go good together would be like mulemanship one and mulemanship two. That, those two don't go good together because you kind of need to already have the mulemanship one stuff going before you do mulemanship two. So, you know, at, at this clinic we had foundation and mulemanship one and, you know, uh, I think eight of them did, did both. Um, and that was good. That was good because what's nice when they when they do both is you can you can show them that what is happening in the groundwork is indeed affecting their ride. You can show them that. Well, you see how you know. Well, for example, there was you know uh, a, a friend of mine there at the clinic. She had a a nice little horse there named Stitch, and she was having quite a bit of trouble rolling the hinds on this horse on the ground. And sure enough, she gets on the horse and same exact thing is happening in the saddle. It, it, it was, it's nice to be able to see that mirror from the groundwork to the riding work. You know, and I try to explain that everything we do in the groundwork is going to affect our riding and, and will affect our riding and should. If it doesn't affect our riding, if the groundwork doesn't affect our riding work, I'm not I'm personally not interested in doing it. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying anything bad about folks that you know en enjoy the tricks and, and and things. That's that's fine. I'm just saying for me personally, the groundwork that I focus on is going to help me in the saddle for sure. And so it's kind of nice as you can, as you go through these steps. A, a lot of the moves that we do as well, they they totally mirror each other. You know, we, we'll do the same move in the same order. You know, in the saddle as we do on the ground then you can see this and it's kind of handy when people do both classes is because we can really address that and you know the, so they'll ask well do i need to go right back to the groundwork and should i get off right now and do the groundwork and no not necessarily i mean it helps if, if you know if your groundwork is going well it will uh you know it's it's definitely going to help you but you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily in, in every situation, you know, get off of my mule if I'm having trouble in the saddle, get off my mule and start doing groundwork. I mean, there's sometimes maybe I would, um, you know, maybe if my mule, if I get on my mule and they're really tight and I can't get much forward motion out of them or um, they're real bothered with transitions or whatever, I might get off and I might go back to some of the ground stuff. But something like moving the hind or moving the front and those types of things, I, I recommend that you just build them um, together. So maybe each day you do that little bit of groundwork, you do that little bit of riding work, and, and you work your way up there. You know, sometimes these moves can actually be easier in the saddle than on the ground. You know, like rolling the hinds. This particular horse... Um, at times he would be a little sticky rolling the hinds, but other times he would be kind of flighty rolling the hinds, like, um, you know, kind of fleeing the scene. And that's challenging on the ground, and you can work through it if you just stick with it. But on the in the saddle, for me personally, that's easier just to stick with it in the saddle because if the horse is in a hurry to move the hinds while you're just sitting up there, you don't have to, like, walk and keep up or try to keep up or uh, anything like that. Um and you don't feel like you're getting ran over up there. You just you're just up on top. So something like that, I would just stay on. 
And you'll notice that a lot of your 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 riding work will complement that groundwork. So maybe you do a little groundwork, you come back and, you know, or excuse me, a little riding work, you come back and, and, and do a little groundwork and, and back and forth, they complement each other. So, you know, things like that come up. Um, the other thing that, that was just discussed quite a lot um, was mules in the saddle that kind of want to dive in, like drop their shoulders in or drop their shoulders out. So, you know, picture you're trying to make a big left circle and the mule wants to dive in sharper to the left and, and lean in. And we we're talking about how to, you know, how, how to kind of fix that, how to address that. And one of my suggestions was instead of riding circles all the time, I like to ride different shapes. And, you know, I might, I might ride a square and make turns like nice, nice turns. Um, I might ride like a hexagon, uh, a pentagon or a hexagon, those different shapes where you're making a line and turn, a line and a turn, another line, another turn instead of trying to keep that perfect circle. Something else I notice that helps the mule's mental frame of mind is not nitpicking so much. So, you know, if you're trying to hold your mule in that circle, I notice that the person really picks at their mule. Uh, you know, I shouldn't say really picks at their mule. I just It seems like they pick at their mule more than if I said, write a hexagon. Uh, excuse me, write a octagon, you know, and so you're making those eight, those eight lines and those, all those corners. When they're making that, that line, people tend to leave them alone a little bit. And then they just maybe ask them for that corner. And that seems to help the mule mentally figure out what you're looking for too. You can pick at them too much. In fact, that's what most of us do. Most of us pick at them too much. We we ask, we, we ask them too many little micro questions too often, um, you know, and, and we don't leave them alone enough. So if you're having trouble with a mule that likes to dive in or drop its shoulder in or out, and some of you may be listening don't know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about dropping a shoulder, you know, an example, most of my audience is, is people that ride in the, in the mountains and out in the hills and on trails. Um, and then, you know, a lot of, a lot of ranch cowboys, that's, that's pretty much my audience. So I'm sure you fit in somewhere in that. And here's, here's an example that I'm sure that you can relate to. If you've ever been out on the trail, you're riding down the trail, your mule sees something, something that bothers them on the side. Maybe it's a scary stump scary rock. It might even be a, a backpacker, a hiker that stepped off the trail or, or whatever. They're scared of something there on the right. So picture you riding down the trail. Your mule is a little worried about something over there on the right side of the trail. So what happens is they will drop their shoulder to the left and they're pushing to the left. And this is a problem that's if they're if they're doing that they're not centered and we need them to be centered if you let them push you like that too often even though they're they maybe they think they have a legitimate reason to be worried but if you let them do that too often what happens 
is they take a mental note. I swear, they take a mental note and they say to themselves, well, that is a open door. I can, if I need to get out of here fast, that is my way out. And, you know, another example of, of how they do this is if you've ever turned your mule or your horse or your cows, cows are the best at what I'm about to tell you. If you ever turn one of these creatures out into a brand new pasture that they've never been in, what's the first thing they do? They go scan the perimeter. They go they go trot or lope that perimeter. They they check it out. They want to know. They want to know how big this country is. They want to know where the out is just in case something comes up. They're trying to find that out. So if there's an opening, opening in the fence, they'll find it. Uh, if there's some weak fence, I swear they'll find it, especially the cows. They'll find that spot. So know that when you're riding, it's as if they're doing the same thing. These, and it's hard to relate to them. We, we don't know what it's like, but, you know, they're, they're prey animals, you know. Um, and you, if you've been to one of my clinics, you, you've heard me, te- you know, teach about how we need to think beyond predator and prey. I don't train using those philosophies much, but since they are a prey animal, it's important to understand a little bit about how they think, how their world works. We need to try to see things from their point of view more often. So as you're riding down the trail, know that your mule is is always scanning. You know, you'll see their ears scanning. You see them checking things out. And as you go, they're, they're looking for a way out from danger. And now all mules are different. I mean, we got some, some mules that have been, I mean, thousands of miles and they go down the trail as quiet as can be. They don't see any worries. They're more comfortable in their minds. But you take a new colt out that's only been out in the woods or out in the mountain, on the mountain or out in the brush just a couple of times, and they are checking everything out. And they're always looking for somewhere if they need to kind of flee the scene. Maybe something bothers them. They, they know where these weak sides are, okay? Um... Often I'll get emails about somebody's horse, you know, spinning out from under them, maybe, you know, spins to the left and, you know, leaves the person hanging in the air. And they'll say, how do I get them to quit doing this? And I'll say, you got to build up maybe that left side or the right side, whatever it is, whichever side they have a constant spin to or a constant bolt to or, you know, the 180 runaway horse or mule, um, you got to get that side stronger, you know, and it happens in these and some of these smaller pieces, you know, maybe they're going down the trail, like I mentioned earlier, and they're just a little scared of that stump, and they just lean to the left a little bit. Well, your left leg needs to come in there and firm up a little bit and help them figure this out. Help them know, hey, I, I got you here. You don't have to push. You don't have to try to find that spot to flee the scene here. Things are going to be okay. And and a little reminder like that is all it takes for you to keep that mule, you know, on track for you and let them know, hey, you know, we, we got you here. And I also notice that you're bothered there. I'm going to help support you here. So that's an important piece, you know, and at that clinic, things like that come up and and it, it was good. It was a good talk, you know, uh, those morning sessions you know, or excuse me, each, each session before we get to really ride and we have a little question and answer at our clinics. And, and I, 
I enjoy that a lot. So, um, yeah, it, it was fantastic. Now, I got to tell you about something else we did after the clinic that was just one heck of an experience for me. So right after the clinic gets over there, um, you know, and I, and I got I to gotta say this too. I am so grateful for the people that come to these clinics and, and everything that they do. You know, our, our host down there, Julia Blackmore, just did an incredible job. And, you know, I've been going down there for years and, and Julia is always saying, hey, you need to see what Florida is really like. You, you need to see what what really goes on, you know, away from the coast. And so uh, after the, the clinic was over, uh, one of the participants, Nikki, and her, her and her husband, Rob, they took us out, uh, took me out on a pig hunt. And uh, I didn't get any pigs. I didn't see any pigs. But, you know, as we're out there walking and, 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 and doing our hunt and checking things out, and they're showing me around the property and, and whatnot, um, I couldn't help but think about the similarities in in pretty much all all these animals. You know, uh, pigs, mules, cattle. You know, they they're such creatures of habit. They really are. They they do the same things. They kind of cover the same ground, and um, you know. So as he's telling me about some of these habits of these pigs and some of the things that they do. I couldn't help but think about the mules. Of course, that's what my life has evolved around is the mules. And, you know, they'll, they'll do the same things, same times of the day. And I, I, I try to watch my animals and, and their habits. And, you know, if you get in the habit of feeding those mules 6 a.m. every day, you can bet that about 6.05 a.m., they are going to be telling you about it that you're late if you if you haven't done it. They're going to be hollering at you, and just creatures creatures of habit. And this brings up a point that I try to share as often as I can: is the mule. I think above all, you know, if you could give them something in your in your training habits, if you, if you could develop a good training habit, it would be. The habit of consistency. Be consistent. And I mentioned this at the beginning of the show. Be consistent on how you ask those questions and how, you know, when you pick up on that rain and you want them to do this, you want to do that, it needs to mean the same thing every time. And also, as Rob was telling me about these pigs and these habits and things it made me think about the mules on how quick they pick up on how quick they pick up on our on our habits you know uh, they can they can really read you they they really can and if how do I say this one of the misconceptions that I hear a lot when people are talking about horses and especially mules it seems is they seem to think that the mule or the horse will be quick to take advantage of a human. And it's really not the case. In fact, you know, with all the cool scientific research that has been done on these equine brains and how they function and, 
I mean, there's some fantastic stuff out there and some really great people sharing information. We now know that the mule and the horse is incapable of, quote, taking advantage of you. They don't, they lack that large frontal lobe, which would be where something like taking advantage of those thoughts and those, those preconceived things would take place there in that part of the brain. And, you know, and it's just not the case. But the mule will do what's easiest, and they will always go toward comfort and away from discomfort. And, you know, you know, like out on our pig hunt there in Florida, he's telling me about, you know, if the, you know, the pigs can, they'll maybe smell you, maybe they see you, whatever, you know, it, it can really affect, it really affect the, you know, your chances of, of being successful on the hunt. And it's the same thing with the mules. Uh, it's not they're taking advantage of you, maybe in a situation that you feel like you're maybe trying to do groundwork. Maybe you're feeling like you're getting pushed around or something. Maybe you're feeling like they're disrespectful. And I have some questions to, you know, to kind of go along with this here in a moment. But if if you set it up so that they will be comfortable doing what you want them to do, they will do it. They will be so willing to do it. They will seek the comfort always, I promise you. That's like the, if you just work off of the principle of comfort, helping your meal be comfortable to do what it is you want them to do, they'll figure it out. They absolutely will. And, you know, when things don't go our way, or if it feels like now, you might feel like the mule did take advantage of you, and if they were capable, maybe they maybe they would. I'm not saying, you know, if they were capable, they wouldn't do it. But I'm, but I I just know that the mule is seeking comfort. So set it up to be successful. Anyways, all in all, I had a great time in Florida. It was a great way to kick off our first clinic of 2022. You know, next year, we're already scheduled to come back to Florida next year, Fort Pierce, Florida, January 19th through the 21st. Uh, we're going to do a mulemanship class. We're going to do a cow working class, and it is going to be fantastic. So all you Florida folks, or hey, you know, <laughs> there's people that drove a long ways to get, you know, to get out of the cold weather. So drive down there, come come ride with us, come work some cows with us and it is going to be fantastic so keep an eye out for that uh let's uh let's talk about my this virtual clinic that we just put together um this virtual clinic was was awesome i mean i i definitely over prepared for it and as i got some feedback from people you know some people said well it felt like a lot of information in a short time and you probably could have you know, you probably could have broke it down into multiple sessions, and you know, a few people said that. I put a I put a lot of information out. Uh, I I did a lot of talking in two hours. I know that. Um, but basically, this virtual clinic, it was you know a virtual clinic, aka a webinar. Uh, we we used Zoom, and it was pretty cool. Uh, basically, you went on our website, you bought a ticket to it, you registered for the Zoom event, and you tuned in. Um, 
we took some questions, but mostly what, you know, mostly we kind of stuck to the presentation and the whole presentation was on from the snaffle bit to the bridle. So we talked about progressions of, you know, what your mule needs in the snaffle bit to graduate to the hackamore, what they need in the hackamore to graduate to the two rein and into the bridle. And we covered all kinds of, of topics that I hear, um, in that, in that subject. Uh, you know, I, I get all kinds of questions about bits. I get all kinds of questions, you know, about how to hold the rain, how to, you know, use your rain positions and all these different things. And we covered a lot of stuff. It, it was, it was good. Um, I wanted to just kind of do a kind of a little mini debrief on this virtual clinic to just address a few things that maybe a lot of you listening right now weren't able to attend that virtual clinic. And I want to, like I said, address a couple of these things that come up and it comes up often. Bits. People want to know about bits. And I think this is probably one of the most confusing parts of having horses or mules is, 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 you know, the, the, the mouthpieces. It, it really is. The mouthpieces are just challenging. And, you know, something I'll say is, is it depends on where in the country or the world you are. It really does. Where in the world are you? Um, you know, one of the reasons that I chose this style of mulemanship, um, and I, and I don't know if I could say that I actually chose it. It, it kind of just came my way and it, and it seemed to fit my program, what I already had going the best. And it kind of seemed to fit what I was searching for. And there's that saying that, you know, you, you, you'll find what you look for. So maybe I had, well, I know I was attracted to that kind of horsemanship and mulemanship my whole life since I was a kid. And it seemed that I just kind of drifted that way. But it's important to know there are uh, so many ways to work with your horse or your mule. And, you know, a lot of the things that we talk about here on the podcast, we talk about in our videos, on our video library, and, and of course, our clinics. You know, it, it's it's just the way that I've found to, to fit me best. But it's also, you notice that I leave a lot of room for you to experiment. Sometimes I give you some specific instructions, but most of the time, I give you a an idea or a philosophy, um, a a process of things, and you can go ahead and, and kind of work at it and apply it yourself. Um, you know, mules and horses, each one, each of them are individuals, and I think they should be treated as such. You can stick to a process. You can go in order in a process, but still adjust to fit the animal. And one of the things that that I one of the things that I get, a lot of people say, well, yeah, well, yeah, they're different. You you can't do the same the same thing with every meal. No, you can't. Not going about it the same way with each animal doesn't always work. But processes and being methodical seem to really help you along. Uh, I've, I've noticed the people that I've studied that have a process, they have an idea what they're trying to get done, and they have an idea how to get there, they have a roadmap. They are 
way more successful than the folks that, you know, maybe they have a, a whole toolbox, but they just kind of shoot from the hip. They'll maybe just do this, and then maybe they'll do that. The inconsistency in those animals is is pretty obvious. But those people that I've watched and I've paid attention to, I've studied and, and learned from that have a process, they have an idea, uh, or like I said, a roadmap, they, they kind of get things going. And most of their animals are successful. I'm not saying that it always works. I'm not saying that it works, you know, that every animal you work, if you have a really good process, every animal you work is going to be just great. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that more your chances of of making more mules a success is going to be pretty high. And as we talked about this, back to the bits that I that I mentioned, you know, people are real worried about bits and different things and and what to use and and I understand all that. Finally, you know, the the last. I don't know, I'd say the last decade for me has been really comforting. I finally got to where I'm I'm pretty comfortable with the tools that I'm using. I used to just really question things and really be worried about the tools and this and that. And for good reason, because if you hung out with me 15 years ago, I was one of them fellas that was scattered. Again, shooting from the hip, got all different tools and ideas and whatever. And now it's pretty simple. You know, I got a I got a two or three good snaffle bits, and they're all basically the same. Um that I use regularly. I'm talking about on hundreds and hundreds of animals. You know, I got a, a handful of good hackamores that I use, and you know, hopefully those will last, those those will wear out over time for sure. And I got a few good bridle bits, and and that's it. You know, um, and I kind of just go through the same steps with every mule and every mule is a little different. Some need to stay in a snaffle bit for a long time. Some you can just go right through and get into the hackamore and some you put in the bridle and they're really comfortable with the first bridle bit you put on others. Some mules are really picky with a bridle bit, you know, these are all things we talked about and it was still interesting how many people still got hung up on certain things about the bit. So it's important to know how bits function. And this is one of the biggest topics that was part of, of our talk last night was knowing how a bit functions and why we use a tool and why we use a tool in a specific order. I've talked about it before on this podcast, but that snaffle bit is a lateral tool and it's a one-to-one bit meaning you pick up on it five pounds of pressure they're going to feel five pounds of pressure when you pick up on it you pull it to the left say it kind of it kind of pulls wrinkles maybe that the the lips on the left side puts a little pressure on the left bar the right side of the rings pushes against that lip and so kind of you have both sides to help you uh, address putting the mule's head in a specific position. And we do this, we use that snaffle bit until we can get this head positioning done without having to put so much pressure on the rein, being able to do it on a loose rein. And you can get it done, sure enough. 
we, we use the snaffle bit until we have pretty good body control. I'm not saying it has to be perfect. I'm not saying it should be perfect either. But you, you, you do it till you have pretty good confidence. And then you go to that hackamore. The hackamore, you've given up that direct signal that the snaffle bit had. And all you have is the outside signal. So say you pick up on that left rein just like I talked about in the snaffle bit. You pick up on that left rein. Um, they no longer have the pull on the left lip and on the left bar um, of the mouth. Now all you have is the outside push of that hackamore, just like that snaffle. You just have that outside push. That's all you got. So you refine a little bit. So you start with a lot of signal. The snaffle bit is a lot of signal. You go to the hackamore, you have less signal. And you stay in that hackamore. I like to stay in it until I develop a pretty good neck rein and pretty good leg control. That's, that's what I'm after. I don't want to have to use so much directing rein by the end of my hackamore stage. I'm not saying it has to be perfect either. You don't have to be perfect. And after... After achieving this, then we go to the two-rein. If you're listening and you have no idea what I'm talking about with a two-rein, what it is, is I literally have two sets of reins. I have my Hackamore set of reins, which will be a, a Makati. And then I have my, my bridle reins, which I use, usually use a Ramel-type rein for that. So you, you literally have two sets of reins that you're operating with. And... The cool thing about the two rain, it, it it's one of my favorite stages because, you know, you can just set your bridle reins down and just use your hackamore reins when you need to have some, a lot of lateral, a lot of lateral control. So when you're trying to turn left and right, you got to reach down and pull, maybe pick up on them. Maybe you're in a, working some cows and you got to be a little bit, um, do a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit more on control. Um, oh yeah, just use that hackamore rein. Set your bridle reins down. When you're just poking along down the trail, not doing anything, oh sure. But you know, pick up your bridle reins and just kind of guide with your bridle. Let them let them carry that. And that's one of the beautiful things about that two rein. Now, we talked about signaling in the snaffle bit. You had the most signal. You had a pull and a push. In the hackamore, you have less less signal. You don't really have much for a pull, but you still have the push. When you get up into the bridle bit, you no longer have either of those. All you have is the ability to ask for a soft feel and some collection. You no longer can use your reins for lateral help to move left and right. I mean, sure, you could pick up on it and help them. I'm, I'm not saying you, you couldn't. You could do that. It's not really designed for that, though. The bridle bit is not made for, for turning, you know, with a, with a single rein signal. A direct rein signal. The bridle bit's not designed for any direct pull. The bridle bit is designed for a soft feel and collection, and and carrying it balanced in their in their mouth and and carrying their head balanced, and that's about it. So you've given up all of your lateral signal in the bridle bit. That's why we don't use a bridle if we're having any trouble. So. Um, if I had a mule that was giving me any trouble, like running away, a mule that wanted a bolt, a buck, really spooky, I'm back to the snaffle bit or the hackamore. I'm not dealing with that in the bridle. No way. You have no control in the bridle. And uh, 
what happens is with the bridle bit, a lot of people will abuse it, and, and maybe they would put it on too early. And then the bridle bit goes from a nice signal device, meaning maybe just jiggling the reins a little bit, kind of sending a little vibration down the reins and slightly picking up on rain chains for a signal. They use it as a leverage device. So pretty much when that curb strap comes into play and you're initiating that curb strap in the bridle bit to inflict some pain for your signal, it no longer is a signal device. It becomes a leverage device. So a bridle bit can be at one moment a signal device and one minute a leverage device. So just so you're clear on that. The snaffle bit and hackamore can never be a leverage device. They're not designed for that, they are a one-to-one tool. So these are just some things we talked about. And, you know, there's so much information there to go through. And, and as I started opening up and talking about it, uh, we just started burning that time so quick. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I just, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't realize how, I knew I had a lot of information, but I didn't realize how much I had to put out there. And so I might have to do, do another part on this or break it down a little further and we might do that and but overall i got a lot of good uh, comments about our virtual clinic the first one we ever did um you know so we're going to do some more of them we're going to try to do one every month on different topics all over the place we'll we'll cover all kinds of different things and i think it'll be pretty fun so look for that coming up watch our facebook watch instagram Watch our website, tsmules.com, and be looking for those things coming up. So let's jump into some questions. We've got a lot of good questions for this episode. So the first question we got um, comes from Lisa Taka down in, uh, she's in Arizona right now. And Lisa, she hosts a, a few clinics for us. She hosts our clinic in Wickenburg, Arizona at the Boyd Ranch, Mule Days, and I mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast. She also hosts a couple of clinics in Sedona, Arizona at her place, and uh, anyway, she's pretty cool, but she's got a mule. Uh, I've known this mule, Katie, since Lisa got her, and one of the biggest problems that, one of the only problems, really, I mean, that Lisa continues to have with Katie is her attitude um, towards being saddled. So this is what she says. I'm continuing to, I am continuing to intermittently struggle with Katie and her attitude towards being saddled. I have tried various approaches, including being mindful of her mental comfort by watching signs and cues from her and using the methods you and I discussed. She at times reverts back to being the very pushy mule that she once was, which includes trying to nip at me uh, or nip at the saddle. My question is this, how do you determine when she is just being apprehensive versus being pushy? I feel the need to firm up with her and correct her behavior. However, I am not sure where the line is, and I feel like firming up with her just increases her aggravation with the saddling process. I would appreciate any thoughts you could give on the topic. Thanks, Lisa. Okay, Miss Lisa, good question. Um, I know Lisa's been struggling with this for a while. Um, you know, sometimes when the mule has maybe continuing poor experiences with the saddle, they can develop um, this kind of dislike or this bad taste in their mouth towards being saddled. 
you know, you see this in a lot of older mules that we, and we call it cinchy. You, you know, a lot of times when you go to cinch them up tight, maybe they, they'll look back at you and nip. And, you know, after you've ruled out any physical problems, that's where my expertise comes in. I don't have expertise in physical problems. So if you're dealing with this and you, maybe they're sore in the back, maybe they have, maybe they got kicked and got a broken rib. Maybe they, everything down to the ulcers can give them trouble. Um, all, it, once you've ruled out any physical problems, which I know Lisa has, there's not a physical problem here with Katie. This is a mental problem. Uh, this is a behavioral problem that she's dealing with. So now that you have the stage set, these are some things I recommend. Now, if you're part of the video library, you can actually see a video of this mule, me working with the saddling with this mule last year. And we talk in the video about being mindful, taking your time. So I go to saddle the mule and she gets a little worried. I just quit. And I just freeze for the moment. So so I go through the saddle on and she acts like she's going to be real bothered by it. I may just freeze. And as soon as that kind of passes, I'll continue and set the saddle on her back or whatever. Um, every time I go to cinch, she gets kind of like any expression change for the negative. A lot of times I'll just freeze. And as soon as her expression goes back to positive, I'll continue. Um, now, some of you listening might think, well, geez, if you do this, aren't you just teaching her to be you know, to be, um, have that poor expression. Well, no, because I'm not quitting for the, the whole day or I'm not quitting big and just leaving it as it is. I'll continue going. I'll continue working through this. It's not the end of the session. It's just the end of the moment. And, and I've noticed that if you pay attention to the mule, when they're apprehensive, when they're worried and you say, Hey, I saw that. I noticed that. I noticed that that bothers you. You can move along a little quicker. Now, that is one approach, and that works on a lot of them. That works on a lot of them, just letting them know that you know, letting them know that you noticed. Um, I do the same thing with maybe if they're scared of a saddle pad or they're scared of a flag or they're scared of whatever. You don't just keep pushing through it. You don't just keep making them. You give them a moment. Now, other times there's mules that, and I think Katie falls into this category often too, this mule that she's that Lisa is asking about, um, that they have some issues um, with you directing them, with you asking them questions. And, and they, may, they may feel like they kind of want to drive you a little bit. And I've seen that in some mules where they actually believe that they will move your feet. They can maybe kind of push you a little bit. and. That's a real thing too. So, you know, if the first method didn't work for you, just being mindful and paying attention to, you know, kind of how they feel, you know, if the mule went to bite or I see the mule getting uncomfortable, I might still pause the saddling, but I might do something to redirect their feet. And usually I don't do too much of, of, of uh, interrupting what I'm doing. So, you know, Basically, if I notice that the mule is having a lot of trouble with the saddling, I probably just set the saddle down and I would go on and I would move the feet. I would direct the mule and get the mule's mind better and come back to the saddle. 
and and make it a better place to be. You know, one thing I like to do to get these mules to kind of like the saddle, and uh, this has been really effective for a lot of mules, is I will set the saddle up on the fence, and I will work the mule, uh, just do, doing the groundwork or whatever, and I'll come back to the fence, and I'll leave them alone by the fence, by the saddle. And then I'll do that over and over. Um, you can even get to the point where you bring them back to the saddle on the fence, put the saddle on their back, and as long as they're pretty quiet with things, let them just soak. If you went to put the saddle on, they're pretty bothered. Just take them back out in the middle, go through another four or five minutes of work, and come back and try it again. What happens most is, is most people kind of have the right idea and they're doing the right thing. They just don't do enough of it. Um, and, you know, it, it's amazing what affects a mule's mind. If you guys are on the video library and you have followed the Dally Diaries much, you'll you'll see the video back when she was just about two years old. She bucked a saddle off because the rigging, the whole rigging busted. It was actually her first saddling ever. The rigging busted. She bucked the saddle off, and you know that was more traumatic for her than I give it than I than I gave it credit for. I I, I didn't think it was that big of a deal, but as I continued to work with her, I realized that oh crap, I really screwed that one up. Uh, so I've had to have all these really good experiences saddling Dally over and over and over again, trying to get the good experiences to outweigh that traumatic experience. Now, it, sometimes it takes a lot of good experiences to outweigh the bad experiences. So those are a couple things that I would do, Lisa. Um, I would probably narrow it down to one of them them few things. Uh, and sometimes you got to bring that level up, that level of caution, the level of interest, the level of curiosity, the level of anxiety, the level of, of looking for comfort up high enough that she will actually see the saddling process as comfortable. So if she's having a real hard time saddling, I might have to go do a level of work that I get get that arousal up higher. And then I come back to the saddle and all of that stuff can come back down and she can learn that the saddling process is, is, is a better place to be. So sometimes to help them find comfort in the things we want them to be comfortable in, you have to make the other things more uncomfortable. So hope that makes sense, Lisa. That's a great question. Thanks for uh, sending that in. And if you guys want more information on on uh, the clinics that Lisa hosts, you can go to our website. And she hosts uh, Wickenburg and two clinics in Sedona. She's a wonderful woman. And she was also a guest on the podcast. You go back and I don't remember which episode it was, but uh, anyways, Lisa Taka is her name. Next question. Hello, Ty. What is your reason for choosing not to use voice commands or sounds when halter driving? Do you use them when you ride at all? I have had a horse that was blind in one eye, so I ended up finding voice commands to be very to be extremely valuable because of it. Therefore, I'm very curious. I've been listening to your podcast, watching your videos, and inputting your methods into my training consistently for about two months now. Uh, thank you very much for being so generous with your knowledge and experience. I also really appreciate your time. Sincerely, Jamie Mitchell. Uh, and Jamie's from Illinois. Okay, Jamie. Um, voice commands. So 
I used to use voice commands all the time. I used to be pretty noisy about uh, voice commands, you know, whoa, um, back, make a little kissing noise to get him to go, um, both on the ground and in the saddle. And, and she asked, do I use the voice commands to ride at all? I, I don't much anymore. And I don't use them on the ground. I had a mule. I was working, and he was pretty good. Um, he was he actually really good. I could just say, whoa, and that mule would stop. I could make a little kissing noise, and he would go. Um, I'd kind of kiss low, and he'd walk. A couple times he'd trot, and then a, a louder one, and he would lope. And there's a couple different situations that kind of annoyed me. There's one where we were working on transitions at a clinic. I was in the middle like I usually am, and all the participants are along the rail working on trotting and loping. And so they're out there shifting up and down, and everybody comes by, and they're kissing and clucking and making all kinds of noise. My mule was really sensitive to that. So if somebody would come by, especially if they were kind of slightly behind him, and they'd make that kiss noise or whatever, and he kept wanting to kind of grab his butt and, and kind of and run, or, you know, kind of go. Um, and that annoyed me. That just really annoyed me because I thought, here I am just sitting on him. You know, my seat, I'm totally relaxed here. My reins relaxed. I'm not picking up on my reins. I'm not, you know, shifting in my seat. I'm not doing anything to tell this mule to go. He just hears the noise and he's wanting to go. And that just, that just bugged me, okay? The next situation, the same mule... I'm helping some folks work on a stop and we're going around the arena. I'm kind of riding along with them. And I said, okay, go ahead and ask for a stop. And so I'm, I'm fixing to go on to the next participant, but these, these guys working on a stop, they go ahead and say, whoa, you know, uh, kind of a deep, whoa. And my mule just wants to stop. And people would, could say, whoa, and he would just kind of want to stop. Um, he wasn't as sensitive to that as he was to going. It was easier to get him to go than to woe. But um, nonetheless, it kind of bothered me, especially in that clinic setting, because here I am trying to teach these people how to build a feel, how to use their seat and their leg and their rein, and my mule is responding to every noise out there. Um, not that not not that he was you know bad in any way or. You know, that was it was negative on his part. He was just doing what he had been taught. But I'm just saying that since I hadn't asked him to do those things, and I realized that the mule was completely ignoring my seat, leg, and rein when it came to that kind of stuff, I just decided that I was no longer going to use voice commands, and I was going to be quiet and totally build a feel. And so um, that's what I did. Now, a horse that's blind... This is going to be a little bit more challenging um, because they do use vision. Uh, they do, for sure. So the, the vision is a big part of building the field. They, they can see you signal. They can see you direct them. They can see you move. Um, but, the, you know, they're much handier than that. Uh, you you got to give more credit than that because I've seen plenty of mules. Um, I've known plenty that are blind. We've, we've had quite a few that are blind in one eye. I've never had any that were blind all the way, but I've had plenty that were blind in one eye that could learn to operate just fine, and I never had to really change things up. The only thing that I would do, I suppose, is I did talk to them, like I'll walking out to the pasture to catch them, 
I, I did talk to him and said, oh, hey, hey, mule, you know, I'm coming up on you here. Not that they understood what I'm saying. It's just that they heard the noise. And, you know, um, but but still, when I do the groundwork or the writing work, I don't use a lot of it. Now, nothing wrong with it. There's there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong or that you shouldn't. If you're listening right now and you're wondering, well, should I use voice commands or not? Go ahead. There's nothing wrong with it at all. I just choose not to anymore because I want to see how good I can get these mules off of my seat, leg, and rein without having to use voice commands. And voice is pressure. You've you've you felt pressure by somebody's voice. Somebody comes in and maybe they're yelling. You feel that pressure, even though they're not physically touching you at all. It's the same thing with the mule. They can feel that. And that's just one more element of pressure that I'm trying to trying to kind of weed out a little bit so that we can build the feel in the seat, leg, and ring. So nothing wrong with it. Uh, go for it. Go for it. Okay, next question. Uh, hi, Ty and Sky. We got a two-year-old uh, horse colt about six weeks ago. He's head shy and cinchy. Um, he's also rather disrespectful. Um, the previous owner broke him to ride, and he does ride uh, pretty good for a baby, but he somehow skipped class on respect for humans uh, because he spins and kicks at us when we put any pressure on him to move out of our way. He leads great, backs nice, but when uh, we try to clear the front, he tries to kick. Um, maybe round pen work would uh, would be best for him. What's your thoughts? Thanks so much, Jamie Jellison. Jamie is from Ohio. Uh, Jamie hosts our clinic in Ohio. Um, we're going to Gloucester, Ohio this year. Um, so if you're from Ohio listening to this, you ought to come ride with us. Okay, Jamie, uh, you know, that's normal. The, these youngsters, the, t- the yearlings, the two-year-olds, the three-year-olds, they're really trying to find their way in life. Um, you know, and and it's not just you. Don't think of it as just a human thing that they're that they're pushing you around or driving you around, they're going to be doing this among their herd too. The best thing for this horse, I would say, is to put them out with your older horses, your older mules, and let them kind of teach him how to how to live life out there. That's He'll, he'll learn more from them um, than he will from, from you. In the meantime, when you do work with him, you got to stick to your standard. You know, you might do a little round pin work and get him hooking on to you, you can teach them to drive, uh, you know, off of off of your pressure there. You can teach them to walk, trot, and lope, and that'll kind of help. You know, maybe he kicks at you. You might hustle them a little bit. Um, you can kind of let that stuff work out. Uh, that's that's normal. A lot of the cults we work with, you're just going to deal with some of those things. Um, you know, you just try to be safe while you're doing it so you don't get kicked, and, and stuff happens. I got kicked uh, just last week by one of my colts. I was trying to do the very same thing, drive her off, and she wasn't happy about me driving her. She kind of just sent out a, a hind foot. I went to block my face because it was coming right at it, and she kicked my hand, and my hand slapped my face. It reminded me it reminded me of when I was a kid, and my dad would take my hand and, and kind of slap my cheek with my own hand and say, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. <laughs> you know that. Anyways, uh, that's kind of what the mule did to me. Um, so be careful with these colts. You know, got to give yourself enough space. Um, you're going to go to drive them, and they are going to kick back. They're going to do the same thing out in the herd to your other animals, though. Your other animals are going to go to move them away from the hay. 
those Colts at that age, they're going to try to defend themselves a little bit. They don't want to be pushed or driven. Um, so you might do some hooking on. And then when it comes to the other pieces of the groundwork, take it real easy. Um, if you have that hooking on going pretty good, it's going to be pretty easy for you to do the ground driving and the halter driving and things. If you're still feeling worried, Jamie, then I highly recommend you working this colt from the back of your mule or your horse where you can be out above them and drive them and move them and you don't have to worry about uh, getting kicked or anything like that. So you might you might work on that too. I'd, I'd do some of that for sure. Anytime I'm worried about getting kicked on the ground or if I have one that's really aggressive, I will do my work. You can do all your groundwork from the back of another animal. So that's what I that's what I do. Good question, Jamie. Thank you. All right. Uh, this is from Clint Sackett. Hey, Ty, I got a mule as a weanling. He is now a year and a half old. I started taking him on rides last year, and, and, he's, and he ponies well. This year I've had him out on two trail rides, and he is starting to bite the back of the legs on my saddle horse. Is there something I can do to keep him from from biting while going down the trail. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks. That's Clint Sackett. I'm not sure where Clint's from. Um, okay, Clint. So this goes right along with, uh, this is a great uh, segue from the last question. It's the same type of thing. Um, you need to think of it as this. When you guys are on the back of your your saddle mule and you're ponying another mule or horse or whatever, your standard does not change at all. Your leading standard is exactly the same. So the standards by which I would be leading this mule if I was on the ground is the same when I get on my riding animal. If you're on the ground and this mule reached down and bit you on the leg, you, you would have a, a big problem with that. <laughs> You'd have a really big problem with that. So you need to keep that in mind. So the mule's legs, my saddle mule's legs, are basically my legs down there. And if they went and bit the mule's legs, it's just like them biting me. So in that situation, I'd probably turn my ride mule around. I would hustle that mule's hindquarters over. I'd roll the hinds quite a bit every time. And I'd try to pay attention so that I redirected that animal's thought before he went to bite the legs. And if he's constantly trying to bite, you might trot your horse and pony him. You might just trot him out for a couple of miles. Go down the go down the trail, down the road, up the mountain, whatever, um, for, for a couple of miles. Let that young colt kind of get the heart rate up, get his lungs working a little bit, and then go back down to your walk. And maybe he goes to bite him again. Go ahead and trot a little while longer. Of course, your riding mule is in, or your horse is in much better shape, I'm sure, than the colt is, so... It shouldn't take long to get that little colt's heart rate up and make it a little bit more difficult every time he goes to bite. Um, if you're really handy, you pay attention as you see him getting his poor expression or doing something to go to bite that animal. You'll you'll initiate that trot before he actually bites. So when you see that expression change, and that's when your timing will be really good. If uh, if if uh, maybe they're really aggressive, um, sometimes they'll they'll trot and they'll still try to bite. That's when I'd turn around and I'd I'd roll the hinds uh, pretty assertively. I'd, I'd I'd do it pretty assertively. Um, I'd get in there and really hustle that. So 
those are a couple things I would do, Clint. Um, and in the meantime, when you work on your groundwork at home, try to get them softer on a loose rein so that when you do pony, you can do these things and it's easier. So, hey, those are some great questions today. Uh, really good topics. I appreciate you guys tuning in, hearing about our, our, our fun clinic in Florida, our first clinic of 2022, and then hearing about our first ever, ever virtual clinic. We look forward to doing more of those. And then, of course, we always appreciate the questions. And don't forget, if you have a question that you would like featured on the podcast, be sure to send me an email, ty at tsmules.com, and put in the subject line, question for the podcast. Uh, and as always, we would love to hear from you. If you would be so kind as to leave a, a review, leave a five-star review if you think we deserve it. Tell us what you think of the podcast. Uh, we love hearing from you, and I love receiving emails from you guys. Um, maybe I should start featuring those on here, start reading those emails. We really appreciate the feedback. We really do. So thank you so much. Uh, if you want more information on our clinics, go to tsmules.com. If you want information on these virtual clinics coming up, go to tsmules.com. And uh, until next time, God bless you all, and we will see you down the road. <music>